This episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club is an audio version of an episode originally made for YouTube. To see the original with any pictorial references, please visit www.youtube.com slash folklore podcast and click on the book club playlist. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club. Today I'll be talking to author and storyteller Dave Tong about his book Medieval Folk Tales for Children, published by the History Press. And Dave will also be telling one of the stories from the book in his own inimitable style. Enjoy the episode. Dave, thanks very much for coming and joining us on the Folklore Podcast Book Club. Club, it's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's an honour to be invited, I have to say. Yeah, you're very, very welcome. So today, as I said in the introduction, we're going to be talking about medieval folk tales for children. But before we come on to that, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background as a storyteller, obviously, as well as a writer, uh, and why, why these themes of folklore and folk tales uh, particularly resonate with you. Oh, it's, it's great because really, I mean, prior to becoming a storyteller, I was a jack of all trades, but I really got into storytelling through going back into education and doing an access course and an MA and so on and so forth. Uh, my favourite subject, I have to say, at school and then at university was history. So before I really got into storytelling, I was really into history and working in various museums to fund my studies. Uh, and it was there I met uh, another storyteller called Stuart Alexander, and we're going back 21 years now. And uh, so it was natural, really, that... Uh, that's that's my cuckoo cock. Um, I forgot about that. <laughs> it was natural that, uh, well, that we kind of fuse story and history. I mean, the two go together because, of course, history is our interpretation of the past and stories are a way of interpreting the past. And um, so we got together. He was already a storyteller. I was into history. We fused it together. Um, because we were working in museums already, we had a bit of an advantage. So we started telling in museums. And uh, before long, we were wearing costume medieval Tudor Saxon sometimes traveling all over the country not just at museums but also heritage sites for English heritage national trust uh, and we're still doing that to this day on and off um, Stuart and I don't work together that much anymore but we still meet up for festivals like the uh, the big Robin Hood festival which is held in Sherwood every August normally anyway uh, so yeah, costume historical storytelling is where it started, and we 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 travelled the land as a as past imagined, and uh, and now we work apart. And I'm the yarn smith, and I don't know what he is to be honest now, but uh, yeah. So there's always there's always been history in my stories before I started writing them. I I I think I realised very quickly that um, that stories t- teach us a lot more about the common folk, the people that we can't really get to in court records than anything else, because of course, these are the stories that they love. So it, they're going to reflect their aspirations, their ideas in some way. 
Well, that's what I prefer. Yeah, and and storytelling is a, is a great way of teaching as well, isn't it? And this, and this is a fantastic book, I think, for for making history fun for kids and, and bringing it to life. Um, and, and you you divide this book into into seven sections, don't you? Uh, yes. Aside from uh, section eight being the end, but yeah, the, that, that, that's seven going... main sections. <laughs> yeah, seven main sections. Uh, chapter eight is a bit of a fudge. The end. Well, it isn't. It just that story is there just to sum up the rest of the stories. So your seven sections are what they are. They are the seven deadly sins. So greed, lust, gluttony, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I I think because I mean one of the things I found out with working with children so much on English heritage sites, particularly on um, uh, like priories, old monastic sites, and such, that that children are very anti-religion today. Now, I'm not a religious person myself, but they they can be so cynical that they they don't see the the kind of secular aspects of these religious places, the care, the uh, the learning, the education. Many of the stories, of course, come through monks and friars long ago. And and so I, I was very keen. I, I developed ways very early on in my storytelling to bring children into not religion, but, but well, yes, religion, but more how it, reflects communities at the time and so there's a, you know I very early on I was doing stuff as a as a pilgrim and talking about a magic feather imagine if you you know you felt this feather could cure any ills and and devising little hooks that could bring children into the mindset of people long ago when of course their lives were dominated by religion so the seven deadly sins comes out of that because children understand those you know they we're not talking about religion here we're talking about basic morals about not being too vain about not being too um greedy and so on and so forth you know they're what we call in in historical interpretation relates and children can relate to all of those things like greed of course absolutely and I, i i like the makeup of this as well in the way you've done it so so each section starts with a, a kind of a, a one-page pracy doesn't it so it's, there's a little bit of history so you have a, a red page at the beginning here with a little bit of history about a king or, a king or mainly. Another, mainly mainly kings i suspect um and then a little paragraph about what that particular sin means so a definition of envy for example in front of me uh, and then three stories to illustrate the idea and then each story ending with a little rhyming couplet which, yes. which i think is great fun and and also as a, as a parent or as a reader i guess are a good way of just kind of checking back and going so did you understand what that story was about does this make sense as well? you know i had a lot of fun with those, those couplets my i i really did and, and it came out of the fact that on my second book norfolk folk tales for children there were at least two two stories in that book that I couldn't really get my head around they were difficult for children and so I turned them into rhymes yeah and I enjoyed that process so much that um that I carried on and 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 when I first started telling stories one of the first stories I told was a Chaucer tale the pardoner's tale uh 
of the three foolish youths who go in search of death. And of course, Chaucer was in, you know, in, in rhyming couplets and what have you, you know, there's a lot, as, as many stories were long ago. And so that's just my little way of honouring the past. But as you say, it's just a way of reminding children, reinforcing what they've just read as well. Yes, yeah, and they're great fun too as well, aren't yeah. they? It's, 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 yeah, oh, I, I love doing it, I have to say. Um, and, and also with the history aspect, I mean, I again, from my experience of storytelling in schools and that, children often reference things, reference things like the Horrible History series. Mm. Now, not all parents like them, but they, they obviously work. They're a hook for children. They're those little ways in that draw them into history, you know, and that's, that's what it's all about, I suppose, isn't it? You know, children love gory stuff. They like the toilet humour as well. And so, of course. Yeah, and, and the song and dance routines in Horrible Histories, I suppose, as well. I mean, it's yeah. the best way I've ever come across of, of remembering the uh, order of the kings and queens of England is, is through watching Horrible Histories, I must admit. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's it. And we, you know, you have to put, I think when you're telling to children, and I mean, certainly writing for children comes out of telling for children, of course, and, and telling for children, they just, they're willing to go anywhere with you. That said, so are adults. I mean, I, I, if I'm totally honest, when I'm telling to adults or children, I treat them in much the same way. And, um, but certainly children, you can go anywhere with them and they're just open to ideas and, and anything that's a little bit silly. And of course, the beauty of that is you then get that wonderful silliness back, which mm. being a storyteller, you know, I certainly thrive on. Tell, tell me a little bit about the, the way that you've collected these stories and the provenance of them, because uh, there, are, there are stories in here which are, are very well known. So, you know, Reynard the Fox, for example, is a a very well-known folk tale yeah but a lot of them are not they're more unusual stories they're less commonly found Um, yeah how did you go about choosing and collecting the ones that you've put in here i mean that actually comes from the fact when i first started storytelling i was very keen to either find stories that weren't really out there anyway or at least really adapt the ones that were out there into my own style you know I wanted people to be a bit surprised by them so I've always dipped into the books the old books I mean I'm I, I'm very aware that a lot of storytellers you know it's they, they follow that kind of oral tradition sort of passing them tongue to air and, and I occasionally pick up stories that way but I suppose it comes from my academic background. I'm, I do like to dig into old books. And I found very early on I could go to a charity shop and I could find a, a, a like an 18th or 19th century collection of tales. Now, if I'm totally honest, I could go for a very heavy volume. It would take me days to get through it. And I might find just one story, but that one story would be... So I've, I've always tried to do that. Um and so it's just it's just following on from that. And and I think also I was aware when I was, you know, for a while now that many of our stories are, are English, British tales, what have you. They obviously come from other lands or they're adapted from stories from other lands. And so I, I've always followed that as well. I've been following that trail and it's something I'm very keen to keep following. So these lovely ancient collections like the... Uh, the seven wise masters and so on and so forth. And of course, now with the internet, you can find uh, transcriptions of a lot of these online, you know, so 
it, it's it's hard. I, I'll be fair because some of those stories just don't work. Certainly, they're very difficult to tell, uh, and you sort of. Um, in some ways that's where the books come in because there are some stories in that book that I probably wouldn't tell because they're just too difficult. Yeah. Yet as the stories in books, they do work. Yeah. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's yeah, a, yes, it, it absolutely does. So tell us a little bit about your adaptations of these. Are you, are you very fixed in trying to retain the original format, the original kind of mechanisms of a story or or are you retelling it in a very kind of liberal way if you like uh it depends on the story really i mean i interesting enough i mean there's quite a lot of chaucer and i do you know i came to chaucer late like a lot of people at school i it i was very dismissive of that shakespeare and what have you but um but i i fell in love with him later and interesting chaucer is one of the ones that's very difficult to adapt given that he adapted the stories himself i i have no problem in completely stripping them beer and restarting i do keep little elements such as the names he used in his version of stories but the problem with chaucer is that he introduces lots of different characters at lots of times so in terms of telling a story and i and i carry that through to writing a story I, I tend to sort of strip them bare a bit and and introduce everyone at once and and you know there's a challenge there to you know to make it work especially for younger children. Um, other, if in truth I do like to put my own mark on a story, so I tend to kind of break it down into sort of five or seven parts and then rebuild it. Now that doesn't mean I don't put some of the original back in. I mean, Chaucer's another good example that when I, you know, I would read different versions of it and see how people had done differently and not, not borrow, I don't mean that, but um, but then kind of fill my head full of that before I then build up again. And and I like to create a little bit of a universe, a shared universe in my story. So I kind of, I don't actually explicitly say the characters are the same characters, so but a fox in one story might be the same fox that's in another. And because I tend to use quite a lot of archaic language as well and alliteration, that kind of gives it, it kind of fills those gaps. It, it gives it the, um, the history back, if you will, if that makes sense, you know, yeah. like a sense of the past as are well. Are you doing that for that reason or are you, are you trying to introduce your target audience, which in this case is children? to those ideas, you know, alliteration, the, the more archaic language? Or is, is it a case of trying to resonate a bit with the originals and put that idea across? Yeah, I mean, it's mainly because it's fun and children and adults pick up on that and they like it. But certain things like, you know, even you know, if I use a, a, an archaic word, I will then back it up with a modern version of the word. But and 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 again, people tend to like that. I think, you know, it's my view that most people come to storytelling as escapism. You know, they they really want to free themselves from this modern world. So anything I can do to help with that. So setting the scene, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of the time in my heritage stuff, I'm wearing the costume anyway. But even if I'm not, I like to kind of really give people a flavour of of long ago. I mean, obviously I'm not going to tell my stories in Old English or Middle English because 
A, I couldn't do it, and B, people wouldn't be able to understand me. But at least I can hint at that with, with the way I tend to talk. And, and it's become such second nature in me. I, I tend to talk like it most of the time anyway, you know. I sort of talk about coin rather than money or, or many different examples like that. I don't even know I'm doing it most of the time. Uh, but yeah, it, I think it's for fun mainly, but then people do pick up on it. And if children come to me afterwards and want to talk about that, that's great. Because to be honest, I love it. I'm very lucky that in a lot of the work I do in Heritage, it's not just a case of telling a story and going away. You tend to be around afterwards to chat and answer, answer people's questions about the stories, how I tell them, you know, what certain things mean if they didn't pick it up in the story. And so, you know, it's just it's just a way of flavouring, I suppose, flavouring the story above all. And the, the book as well is very beautifully presented, as uh, I have to say a lot of um, books put out by the History Press are. Um, I, I can say this, I suppose, as a History Press author with a slight amount of bias, because I really love the presentation of, of mine. <laughs> but, but we're not here to talk about that. Um, but the illustrations are... Uh, are fantastic and and of course very i'm just going to hold the front cover up for, as an example um very historically accurately represented if you like because they're all done in the style of illuminated manuscripts um, yeah. uh, tell us a little bit about your illustrator well that i mean that comes out of the fact that i've always been interested in things like the Luttrell and Macclesfield, Macclesfields, I believe it is, Salters anyway. And I did actually quite early on, I, I put together a whole storytelling performance around the Luttrell Salter because most of the images in there, although of course it's a religious book, primarily it's um, many of the images are secular and quite humorous. And so it, it just opened up a whole world of being able to work those pictures into folk tales. I mean, they reflect many of the folk tales from that time. And I'm very lucky that my partner, Kim, is an artist. She teaches art. So we first worked together on my first book, Tudor Folk Tales, uh, where she reproduced um, woodcut images. And so it was natural that she would do this one as well. And, um, and it's very nice because the illustrations, rather than me writing the stories down and then illustrator illustrating them afterwards we were working on the illustrations at the same time as the stories were being written so they could really I mean they're all based on original images but we subtly change them here and there you know and just add our own details if we need to yeah and, and I mean there was always a lot of humor in in the um in, in the illumination of manuscripts anyway wasn't there in the way that they yes. were done and, I mean, I have yeah. randomly picked an example just yeah. by clicking to it. Um, what's lovely about that, we, we came across another little collection of illuminated manuscripts where they did use the border like that. And I'd never seen anything like this. So there's, there's another, the story of the, of the cow that comes home where the couple are sitting on the edge of the border milking their cows. And that's based on a very, you know, on a similar image. And, and it, and it shows such a freedom in the people at that time. You know, you we I think we 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 always do people in the past a disservice. We think that they were very regimented, that they all doffed their caps and did exactly as they told and were quite serious because of course of religion, you know, they they lived in a very religious world. But they knew how to have fun. They they had a laugh. You know, you you get a sense that when some of these people were were doing these illustrations that 
I mean, let's face it, they took a long time. They needed to ease that, the, the pressure of that, and they had fun. I mean, same with all this, made me the Tudor scripts, you know. Sometimes you'd see when I was doing my MA, when I was going through Tudor documents, where a bored scribe would roll his thumb in the ink on the side of the, uh, the, uh, the page or do little, some of them very rude doodles. And, um, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, and I think we should celebrate that more. So the stories and hopefully the illustrations do that, really, that freedom yeah. that people they absolutely do, uh, and they are reflective of that kind of um, style as well. There's a lot of toilet humour in this book, isn't there? Let's be honest. And there is. A, yeah. it's for children, and, and B, these are medieval tales, and there was quite a lot of that in those stories anyway, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's quite. It's some. There are some like you know some of the uh, the trickster tales. The uh, the um, forgive my pronunciation pronunciation here Eulenspiegel Eulenspiegel um the German trickster I mean some of his stories are just so extreme I've never done anything with them um, because that's all there is you know it's it's just very I mean uh you you get stories where people are beaten to death with uh with medieval versions of um toilet seats and all sorts it's it's very strange uh but yeah I mean there's one of my favorite stories in that book is one that I find it's a Chaucer story. It's one of the lesser known ones uh, about the uh, friar who goes there, he, who's begging for money and uh, uh, a man who's dying tells him to reach under the covers and of course, instead of giving him money, he farts in the friar's hand and the friar has to work out how he can divide the fart. I worked that up when I first started storytelling to tell. Um, so we're talking about nearly 20 years ago, really. And I never had the courage to tell it, but it worked so well in the book that now, now I've got no excuse now. People do it, and it, I've told it numerous times over Zoom as well. It, it's such a lovely tale, but but yeah, I think people, not just children, um, adults. I mean, many of the interesting enough. My my favourite period of history is Tudor, and when I was going through the court records as part of my MA. The, you know, they could really swear, you know, and, and not in the way we do. They they were very creative and often it involved, you know, I can I hope I can say it, turds and farts and stuff like this, you know, um, because, of course, that had the shame, shock and impact as it does for us even today. Yes. So that's another connection between us and those people long ago. Yeah, yeah. Li- little changes really, does it? Let, let's let's be brutally honest. Um, so I am going to ask you to tell one of the stories, uh, not necessarily directly from the book, but in your own style. You are a storyteller. It would be silly to, uh, to get you to do it in any other way. Um, have you got a particular favourite that you want to um, broach in this way? Well, I am very keen on trickster tales. They find their way into all my books and most of my sets. And I am actually, uh, I've been commissioned by the History Press to put together a collection of trickster tales from many lands which you know i should be getting on with really at some point so uh yeah this is this is one of those trickster tales if that's all right yeah, so and it will be very similar to the book because i have to say when i write books i tend to try and especially if they're stories I tell a lot i do tend to write them as i tell them anyway so uh so yeah would you like me to tell it now yes yes please do so there we go. Well, 
There was once a trickster, a beguiler of the foolish, a coney-catching cunning man. And since we are in England, I shall call him Hourglass, for that's what they called him over here long ago. And Hourglass, he travelled from town to town, village to village, house to house, wearing many different disguises. Sometimes a priest, sometimes a potter, sometimes a peddler of wares. But on this occasion, on this day, he arrived at a certain town disguised as a scholar, a medieval student from long ago. And he went abroad about the town, claiming that he was learned in alchemy and in astrology, that none could match his wit. Well, such was his boast, it reached the ears of the the Chancellor of the University, where all the wise men did dwell. Where all the wise women did dwell, I've no idea, for there were far too many of them for just one university. Now, the Chancellor, he was a, a, a learned man himself, or at least he thought he was. He believed you should only believe what you read in books. He had no time for fake news. And hearing of Hourglass's boasts, well, he decided he would set him a challenge. And so it was, a herald, a messenger, was sent from the Chancellor to talk to Hourglass. He told Hourglass that if he could answer three questions, he would be rewarded with 100 gold coins. But, said the herald, but, says he, if you cannot answer but one of the Chancellor's questions, you will be whipped through the streets of this town. Well, a lesser trickster would have fled, but not Hourglass. And the following day, he arrived at the university disguised in, in cap and scholarly, yeah, cap and scholarly guard. See, I'm not as clever as Hourglass. I got it the wrong way round. He bowed low to the Chancellor and all of the other students gathered there. The Chancellor wasted no time. He said, tell me, tell me, my friend, if you can. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me how far is it from the earth to the moon? What hourglass he smiled broadly, for the answer was easy. He said, why, it's exactly the same distance as it is from the moon to the earth. Well, all of the students laughed loudly, although the Chancellor did not, for he knew how a glass spoke true. He could not argue with that. And so he asked his second question. Tell me, says he, tell me if you can. Tell me how many hairs there are in my beard, and he pointed to his big bushy beard. Hourglass smiled broadly. The answer is easy, says he. Stepping forward, he plucked one of the hairs from the Chancellor's bushy beard and said there was exactly one less now than there was one moment ago. All of the students laughed loudly, although the Chancellor did not. But Hourglass spoke true. He could not argue with that. And so it was the Chancellor asked his third question. Tell me, says he, tell me if you can. Tell me how many stars are there in the night sky? Well, Hourglass smiled broadly, for the answer was easy. He pointed to a bearskin rug that lay in front of the Chancellor's throne and said, there are exactly the same amount of stars in the sky 
as there are hairs in that rug. Except this time, the other students gathered there didn't laugh loudly because now the Chancellor grew angry. Red-faced and roaring, he leapt from his throne and said, how could you possibly know that? For the first time, Harl Glass looked worried as if he was pondering upon the Chancellor's wicked whip. But then he smiled broadly again. Stepping forward, he plucked another hair, except this time from the bearskin rug. And he said, forgive me, my lord, for last night I forgot that I saw a shooting star falling from the sky. And so now, says he, now there are exactly the same amount of stars in the heaven as there are hairs in that rug. The students laughed loudly, although the Chancellor did not. For he was too lazy to count the stars in the heavens, too lazy to count the hairs in the rug, too mean to pay someone else to do it for him. And so Hourglass, the cunning con man, he left, weighed down with a hundred of the Chancellor's gold coins. And there that tale ends. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dave. That's a, that's a good example, isn't it, I think, of, of the kind of... The, kind of style that's used throughout this collection it is and it works well actually i have to say when i tell those sorts of stories they're very interactive and of course children it's like they pick up on the foolishness of that very quickly and and mm. it brings them into the story as well you know right. and adults again and it's the same isn't it with the, and you find these techniques in these sorts of stories and in storytelling as well is, is the repetition of phrases and things like that which yeah. people know what's coming up in a, in a yes. certain way and then maybe that's subverted or maybe they can kind of join in with it after a while as these things go through and it, it, it exactly. all people in. yeah yeah i i love it when i'm telling and you've got that and you sometimes see people mouthing yes i don't find children mouthing what you're saying you know getting they're getting ahead of you and as you say sometimes though you can throw them a curveball and go totally different with it, which is nice. And of course, that's the fun part of what we do. You know, I mean, I suppose that's one of the difficulties of writing stories that when you're telling, there is always that chance to um, to adapt it on the spot to, um, and there's a word for it. Do you know, I've totally forgotten what it is. Um, um, you know, it's lost. It's gone from my head. But you know, change it basically anyway. Whereas, yeah, we're improvised. That's the word. Yes. Um, but with with I, when I first started writing my stories down, I was a little bit worried that I had hadn't got that ability to do that anymore. Um, so that was a little bit of an issue. Um, so I suppose doing that in the chatty style and carrying on with the alliteration and the repetition, at least I know that children are still enjoying that, even if they can't enjoy me doing it. Yes. Yeah. And you've intimated already a little bit about what's coming next, but tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be working on next. Um, well, Trickster Tales is coming up, and that's and it is Trickster Tales from many lands because again, it's I really want to push, especially I think how we live at the minute. You know, we're we're always talking about borders and shutting ourselves off. So I'm I'm very keen to do that as well as explore uh, Trickster Tales anyway because there's just so many of them, and I and I think with Trickster Tales more than any other type of tale, you know, we see them what everyone I talk to um, and I'm very lucky that at places like Sherwood I do meet a lot of foreign visitors 
And if I tell a story like that one, they'll say, oh, we have a version of that or we have a trickster. And, you know, and they're tricksters all around the world anyway. So that's my main focus. And just really working on lots of school stuff for next year, hopefully. And um, yeah, and new sets, really. Um, I the, the thing is that the books kind of dominate now. So once you've written the book, you tend to sort of, or I rather, I tend to, sort of then start working up sessions off the back of that book anyway. So they kind of lead at the minute. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's mainly, I mean, I'm, I was meant to be doing quite a bit of storytelling abroad this year before the lockdown for a, a company based in, um, in down in South America. And I was going to go to Chile and China and hopefully I'll be doing some more of that next year, in which case I might be able to bring some stories home with me as well. Oh, I'm sure it's it's a good way, isn't it, of being able to collect yeah. other people's stories as well as sharing your own, which is what it's all about, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Fantastic. So if people want to look at more of your work and see what you do, have you got a web presence where we can direct them, for example? I have, yeah. Um, it's the yarnsmithofnorwich.com forward slash welcome um, You know, I like a lot of people, I tend to do a lot of my stuff on facebook nowadays i mean i'm i'm very involved with the world storytelling cafe so if anyone watching wants to check that out it's it's lovely and i am going to be doing a christmas set for them it's going to be hopefully every saturday evening in december like an advent thing based one of the characters in my book uh, who actually features on the front cover there he is sir cleage sir cleage and the christmas cherries i did off the back of that book i worked up the story of Seclusion and the Christmas Cherry, but but created it or rather adapted it into a a frame story as Chaucer would have done, you know. Uh, so he's traveling the land, taking these Christmas cherries that he's grown. I don't want to spoil it. He's taking them to his his old master, the King Uther, and on the way he meets lots of other people. He um, he swaps cherries for tails, basically. So that's how the framing narrative works. And and I'm doing that in four parts on the World Storytelling Cafe. So that's definitely one to go to because you'll meet many wonderful storytellers, including Tom, who you had a, recently, Tom Phillips. He's doing some bits and pieces for them as well. Yes, absolutely. Tom, Tom the author of uh, Forest Folk Tales for Children, which which we have covered on the book club, as as you say. Uh, brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to talk about your work, Dave. Uh, Medieval Folk Tales for Children, as I said, is published by the History Press. It is available from the History Press on their website through normal book channels. Your favourite bookshops will have it. Um, is it also available as an ebook as well? As a? Is it also available it, as an ebook? It, it is going to be at some point, yes, but uh, yeah, not yet, not yet. Awesome. So, so, so for now, yeah, you can get a print copy uh, from yourself as well? Yes, yes, people keep through my website, you can contact me directly and I can sort, sort out a signed copy Brilliant. of that in any of my books, so yeah. So as always, if, if you can, go directly to the author first because you'll get a signed copy or a dedication and authors like it when you buy books directly from them otherwise from the publisher or from your favourite, preferably independent bookshop or the normal channels. You'll be able to find it in all of those. Dave, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to you tell and to talk about this book. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
My thanks go to Dave for joining us on the book club today to talk about his book, Medieval Folk Tales for Children. The Folklore Podcast website has more bookie information for you at www.thefolklorepodcast.com where you can find reviews of the books that we discuss on the book club and many others, and other folklore book-related resources. If you enjoy all of the free content put out by the Folklore Podcast, both here on the book club and on the main podcast feed and on the website, then don't forget that you can support us for as little as $1 a month via our Patreon page, where you can find other extra resources, bonus content and a lot more. You can also make a one-off donation on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. All of your help is greatly appreciated. It is, of course, not compulsory, but without our supporters, these shows and other content just wouldn't continue to happen. If you can help us, thank you very much. If you cannot help us financially, do please just share our content around for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for watching, and I look forward to seeing you again on the Folklore Podcast Book Club.